You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. Hi, everybody. Liam here. The episode you're about to hear is a little different than usual. It's a collaboration with one of my favorite shows, Snap Judgment. Snap is an incredible storytelling show that's on NPR stations coast to coast, and it's also a very popular podcast. It was an honor to work with these folks. So first you're going to hear the story that's airing on Snap, and then you're going to hear an additional story about what happened after that story ended. I know that sounds a little vague, but I don't want to give anything away. You'll see what I'm talking about in a second. Okay, so here's the show. And if you're not already subscribed to Snap Judgment, do yourself a favor and check them out now. Snappin'. A little while back, one of Oakland's resident historians, he came to us with a story. This guy, Liam, he told us that he knew someone who was a real hero. Like an action movie-style hero, a comic book-style hero. From our own hometown, of Oakland. So when Liam offered to get this story for us, as you might imagine, we said, yeah. Sensitive listeners, please note that this piece does contain violence, language, and graphic imagery. When I was about nine years old, we were at some park. It was you know, late 50s, early 60s, everybody lived kind of segregated. And so there was white people on one part of the pond, black people on the other. And I was out swimming and my thing was, if I could feel the bottom with my feet, I was cool. But the bottom dropped off. I started panicking and I really couldn't swim well and I, I was drowning. And the next thing I remember, is someone just grabbing me, and I remember being pulled back, and then my feet hit the ground, and it was this young girl, and she pulled me to safety, and just turned around and swam back to the group of white people that she was with. And I never forgot that because I'm, I'm drowning, and she's the only one that left that group and came over to help me. And it was the first time that I can remember someone putting themselves in injury for me. About 30 years later, it's 1989. Raven is living in West Oakland with his wife and kids. He works security at Oakland International Airport. And I was off that day, so we decided to go to Blockbuster and rent a video, so we got Pet Cemetery. Came home, put on my sweatpants. We all got comfortable and got all relaxed, and she made popcorn and everything, put in the video. And I guess we got maybe about five minutes into it, and then all of a sudden, the house started shaking slowly, and then it got started shaking more. I remember hearing the boom, 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 boom. 
Raven lived about a block away from the Cypress Freeway. The earthquake hit just after 5 p.m., during peak commute hours. And then as we got onto the porch, we looked to the right and there was a cloud of dust. I would say 40 feet high, maybe more. And you couldn't see the freeway structure anymore. All you could see was the cloud of dust moving towards us. And then out of this cloud of dust, this man runs out. His eyes were as big as saucers. And he yells, the freeway's falling, the freeway's falling. I looked at my wife and I said, come on. And we ran down into the cloud of dust. It's October 17th, 1989. The 6.9 Loma Prieta earthquake has just struck the Bay Area. The shaking lasts 15 seconds, downing power lines, destroying houses. It disrupts the World Series game between the Oakland A's and the San Francisco Giants. A few miles away from the ball game, a section of the Bay Bridge that connects Oakland and San Francisco has collapsed. And the double-decker Cypress Freeway, right behind Raven's house, has also fallen. When you first got into the cloud, it was like you couldn't, there was no sound. It's like standing in like a brown, moving fog bank, thick. Then my mind starts to hear the horns blowing. And the horns are blowing louder and louder and louder. And my wife says, there's a man in the car there, look. Chunks of concrete from the structure had fallen on cars on the surface street below. There's a guy in the car and a huge piece of concrete is laying on top of him and the steering wheel is basically what's keeping it from crushing him. And it had hit him in the head or something had hit him in the head because I ran over there and I'm trying to, to get the concrete. He says to me, what happened, man, what happened? And I said, the fucking freeway fell on you. The freeway fell. Raven started to help the guy in the car when he heard his wife calling to him, pointing at a woman who had crawled out from a crevice between the top and bottom decks of the freeway. She was clinging to the railing a few stories off the ground. Raven ran over and stood below the woman. And she said my boyfriend, she was saying, was in the truck and it's on fire. And she's hanging over the side. I didn't have any ladders or anything, but the flames are starting to come out higher and higher, and she's starting to hang out further and further. I said, let go, I'll break your fall. And she said, I'll die if I fall. I said, you're going to die if you stay there. And she crossed herself and said, I'm letting go. And I said, I'm waiting. And she let go. She hit me, and it felt like everything in the world landed on top of me. I... I I hit the ground. My thumb popped out of joint and was hanging back here, and I had to grab my thumb and pop it back into joint. She was kind of on top of me, so I rolled out from under her and looked at her, and I could see that one of her legs had a compound fracture and the bone was sticking out. 
Um, I grabbed her dress real quick and covered it up. I said, are you okay? Are you okay? And she said, get me the hell out from under this thing. And I scooped her up and ran her over to my wife. My wife and son flagged down a van. And um, from what I understand, the highway patrol told me she was the first person to reach um, Alta Bates Hospital. The first responders hadn't gotten to the freeway yet. The only people helping out at this point were Raven and his neighbors. During the earthquake, cars driving on the top deck of the freeway had fallen down onto the lower deck. Raven, he wanted to get to the people trapped inside. So he climbed a tall eucalyptus tree right next to the freeway and lowered himself onto the top deck. He looked down into the wreckage and saw a minivan. There was screaming coming from the van. That's why we went straight to the van. And there were two other guys up there. They just came out of nowhere and just started helping me. So we started trying to get the doors open. There were six women in the minivan. Raven and the other men, some of his neighbors, were able to pull a couple of them out to safety. We got those two out, and then uh, first responders started to arrive. When we were trying to get the women out, the top deck had dropped down, and then there was all kind of pieces of concrete that were dangling. But I wasn't really paying attention to that because the uh, firefighter told us to try and push the minivan up. So I went around to the front, and we were all trying to push it up so we could get the doors unjammed and get us out. And um, there was an aftershock at that point. And I'm standing there, and I look up, and I see one of the firefighters who's at the other end and he's going to me like this, waving me towards him. And I'm wondering why, and he points up, right? And I look up and there's this, it's got, it had to be like at least 14 feet in diameter, piece of concrete dangling by one support bar. And it was just dangling over my head. Raven and the paramedics laid the women down on stretchers. Raven was tending to one of the women. She wouldn't let me leave. Um, when I got her out and everything, I got her comfortable, got the other woman out, and I came over to her. And I had, I, you know, I'm stroking her forehead. I said, you're going to be all right, you're going to be all right, you're going to be all right. And I could tell she was in shock, you know. And um, she reached up and grabbed my shirt. And she said, don't leave me, don't leave me. And I said, I'm not going anywhere. I'll be right here, you know. And I literally had to pry her hand off so I could go do whatever else I could do, you know. And I hear my wife's voice over the din of everything. Raven! Raven! And I locked in on that. And then I heard another male voice yelling at my wife. <laughs> so I come running over to the rail and he has my wife by the arm and he has all the people lined up against the wall of this building over here. And these are all the people that had come to help now. And he's got all the people lined up and my wife is refusing to be put against the wall and she's yelling for me, we're helping people. We're and the cop is just telling her to get against the wall, get against the wall. And I came over there and I yelled, Hey, what the fuck are you doing? We need help down here. And he looks up at me, and he runs back to his car. The cop just drove off. Raven and his neighbors rushed back in to help people. There were still drivers trapped. 
Raven could hear them screaming. He wanted to get to the people trapped inside, but there were only a few points where he could wedge his body between the crumbling layers of concrete. There was a hole in the side, like on the other side where the woman had crawled out. And I tried to get in through there because uh, there were, you could hear the people yelling, horns blowing, and the smell of gasoline and all that. And the one thing that I could hear over everyone else, and maybe because he was closer up, was a man yelling, there's fire, my legs are burning, I'm burning, I'm burning, I'm burning. And um, this is the part that bothers me. It's because I don't know if it's what I truly was hearing was real. Then that man, he knew he was dying, you know. I don't usually talk about this point because it's the, the one point that um, where I started to go in and couldn't go all the way in. I never tested myself to find out if I could because I know from the spot that I was in just the, the confinement and the smell of the smoke and the gasoline. I'm not going to say it sent me into a panic, but it caused me to scurry out. This has always bothered me personally. And so at that point, you know, I'm looking around and the firefighter who had talked to me earlier, he's looking at me and he's got this oxygen thing in his hand and he comes over to me and he says, come here, sit down. And when he said that to me, I realized my legs were shaking and he tells me to come over and sit down. And then I realized all the adrenaline was just flushing out of my out of my body he gave me oxygen for a while and uh after that i got up and went home hey raven you'd been you'd been living by that freeway for years what changed after after the earthquake imagine I can't describe it. It's constant noise, constant sound. I'm trying to think of something to relate to it because that was the noticeable thing after the earthquake was the silence. Thank you, Raven, for sharing your amazing stories with Snap. And we're happy to say, Snappers, that Raven and his wife are still Oakland locals and their house is still standing. Original score for that piece by Davey to the Kims, it was produced by Liam Donahue and Eliza Smith. Liam has a podcast about all kinds of crazy Oakland history. It's called East Bay Yesterday. Find out more information on our website, snapjudgment.org. What you just heard was one little slice of a much bigger story. Coming up next, you'll hear what happened after the quake, how it affected the people living in West Oakland, how some of the media coverage was really, really bad, and how the neighborhood has changed since the freeway came down. But first, we're going to start with Raven's history and how we came to live here in the first place. One, two, 
Before my mom was able to afford a boarding school for me, my mom worked as a maid. And we had just got indoor, we were the first ones in our neighborhood to have indoor plumbing. I grew up on a dirt street, dirt dead end street. Raven grew up in New Jersey under a single mother. He had a few run-ins with the law during his wild teenage years, and he eventually decided to make a fresh start out on the West Coast. His passions were art, music, and martial arts. So he decided to come to the Bay Area, where there was a lot going on in all three of those fields. Initially, Raven and his wife, Chris, set their sights on Berkeley, but... Couldn't afford to live in Berkeley. (laughs) Instead, they found a place in the Oakland neighborhood that some people call Clawson, but a lot of folks know as Dogtown. There used to be a lot of stray dogs there. Okay, so flashback to 1985. It's their first night in the new house. We unloaded everything into the, into the house, and then we went out to uh, dinner. And we were going, I guess, for about 90 minutes, maybe at the most. And when we came back, we pulled up in front of the house, and my daughter says, I just saw the curtains move. I think someone's in the house. So I, I looked, and then I saw the curtains move. So I jumped out and ran and, and put the key in the lock. And by the time I got in there, whoever it was, they got out through my daughter's bedroom window. But the thing was, they had everything piled up in the middle of the living room. All the wires rolled up nicely, everything all set to go. And we just pulled in just in time. But that was our introduction the first day. The second day, uh, we went shopping, came home, and... As we were coming down 34th Street, all of a sudden we got bombarded with raw eggs. What? <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> was it ki- like little kids or something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Do you think that was just what they do to welcome people to the neighborhood? Or what was, what was that all about? Well, I didn't feel very welcomed. And <laughs> I jumped out of my van and chased them and expressed how I felt about my van being egged. But... Within within two weeks, we were members of the neighborhood and, you know, everything was cool. Raven remembers a lot of crack dealers and sex workers posted up on his block back then. But he says for the most part, people who live there got along. If I put on a little party in the back, I would just open up the back gate and people would just flow in and out from the neighborhood, come listen to the music for a while, grab something to eat, and, you know, and that's the way it was. They had camaraderie. After the quake, the Cypress structure was never rebuilt. Instead, it was replaced by Mandela Parkway, which is much more pleasant. It's a regular street with a big pedestrian walkway instead of a double-decker freeway. So there's less traffic, less noise, and a lot more greenery. A bunch of West Oakland neighborhood groups fought hard to make it this way. Anyway, I asked about the impact of this transformation and Raven's wife, Chris, grabbed the microphone. All of a sudden, people realized we weren't horrible people, and they realized the freeway is down now, so this is great, great property. Now they're selling a condo for a million dollars around here, when it used to be 20000 a house. There's a lot going on in that answer. The issue of rising rents and gentrification is huge, 
And I'm not going to try to tackle it here, except to say this. What Raven and Chris miss most about the old neighborhood is actually knowing their neighbors. They said that the new people who move in mostly just come and go without ever saying hi or introducing themselves or really making any effort to be friendly. But getting back to Chris's answer, I want to talk about this part. People realized we weren't horrible people. Raven nodded his head emphatically when Chris said this, so I asked what they meant. We used to be a drive-over. You look over the side of the freeway as you're on your way to San Francisco and, and say, oh, I'm glad I don't live there. Raven gave me this example to prove his point. Some of the people he rescued after the quake were women who worked at a hospital in San Francisco. After they recovered from their really horrific injuries, a few of them visited Raven, and one of them opened up about her stereotypes. About a year later, they came to thank me and everything and took us out to dinner and all that. And she's one of the women who said to me about how she was warned never to let her car break down in this area. And she told me personally that that's how she felt about West Oakland. She said her friends used to tell her, no matter what happens, don't let your car break down in West Oakland. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Like, why would someone have said that to her? At the time we had gone through this, and we're still just at the tail end of the crack ep epidemic, people in the neighborhood didn't rob each other, but there were robberies going on and a lot of garbage being dumped. And, and so the, the area had a reputation for being dangerous West Oakland. And because there was no major traffic moving through the neighborhood, all the freeways went around or over. No one ever really got to, had reason to drive through the neighborhood except to dump garbage. No grocery stores or anything. So it had, a, had that, you know, ghetto reputation. The earthquake victims here on the ground got to see the bravery of many West Oaklanders. Unfortunately, instead of reporting these stories, some media outlets chose to spread completely unfounded rumors. And Raven is still furious about this. I'm careful when I say this. A firefighter has a suit to protect themselves, have training to know how to deal with the situation. But the person in a pair of jeans and a t-shirt and sneakers, no helmet, those people were crawling around inside that freeway structure trying to pull people out. And those people were from this neighborhood all up and down this freeway. And there were other people who did a lot more than I did. And I just have to say this, because those people, along with myself, were accused of stealing from these people. And not one person was ever charged. Not one person was ever arrested. Not one piece of stolen jewelry was ever found in a pawn shop that came from West Oakland. But it was in newspa newspapers that we were stealing off dead bodies in West Oakland. Raven remembers that most of these bogus stories were coming from talk radio. But here's an example of what he's talking about from a newspaper. This is from an AP story that went out around the world. Quote, 
The quake seemed to bring out the best and worst of people in the Bay Area. Ignoring the screams of victims on Oakland's collapsed highway, looters preyed on wrecked cars and trucks in the minutes after the earthquake, police said. Again, there is absolutely zero evidence that this ever happened. And if a cop saw a black man pulling somebody out of their car and thought that was looting and told a reporter, I don't think anybody would be too surprised if that's how this rumor got started. Anyway, just to be clear, this is what really went down. All up and down the length of Cypress structure, people were coming out of their homes to help. One of the doctors said that if it wasn't for the people in West Oakland coming to the rescue, they called it something like the golden hour or something like that. They said, if we hadn't got to the people that we did, there would have been more people dead. In the weeks and months after the earthquake, West Oaklanders suffered in so many ways. For a while, there were government checkpoints that people had to go through just to get around the neighborhood because it was a disaster zone. And then when the checkpoints came down, there was a flood of curiosity seekers who wanted to come and take pictures of the wreckage. And then there was all the noise and dust from the debris removal. And we haven't even talked about PTSD yet. Either way, Raven said that the media mostly ignored West Oakland during this recovery period. Well, it's part of the, uh, the drive over thing, you know. Yeah. The, there seemed to be more interest in the fact that the baseball game <laughs> was interrupted because of the quake than what the people down here were going through. Just as an experiment, ask a few people who aren't from here what they remember about the 89 quake. I bet a lot more of them will mention the World Series than the Oakland Freeway collapse, even though this was where the vast majority of fatalities occurred. Back then, when Raven tried to push back against all the negative perceptions and let people know what was really happening in his neighborhood, it didn't go very well. I went on um, the TV show they had at the time in San Francisco called People Are Talking. I wanted to talk about what was going on over here. And they kept telling me, uh, your chance will come in a second, your chance will come in a minute, your chance will come in a minute. And so near the end of the show, they said, you know, when we come back from the break, um, they're going to talk for a minute and then they're going to call on you, because in the audience. So when the time came, there was so m I know I must have sounded insane because there were so many things that I was trying to explain in two minutes. I was trying to explain to what we were going through. The thoughts were just coming to my head that quick and quicker than I could, you know, get the words out. And the only thing I could get out coherently was we need help over in West Oakland. 
And I know I must have sounded like a maniac when I said it. What know? else were you trying to say that you didn't get a chance to say back then that was on your mind? What were you thinking? Mostly about, you know, because at that time we were still going through the stress of the streets being blocked off. And, and I, f I felt, as I do now, I felt then that every word I say represents Oakland. There's an old black saying from before I was born. When I walk in the door, my race walks in the door with me. When I open my mouth to speak, my race is speaking. So how I speak, how I walk, how I carry myself, my whole race is being judged by that. That's how I felt when I was there and trying to express what we were feeling over here. And they didn't want to hear that. I didn't realize it till later on how much the earthquake messed me up. For about six months after it, me and my wife were just fighting and fighting and fighting. And um, the nightmares, that I was having, the nightmares I was having because the fear of being crushed and buried, okay, um, those dreams gave me a lot of stress, so it caused me and her to fight a lot after that, you know, and not just us. Um, a lot of people in the neighborhood, I don't, everyone in the neighborhood kind of seemed, even after the streets were opened up and everything, it seemed like there was a lot of stress in the people's minds. It's been almost three decades since the Loma Prieta earthquake. And the stress and fear and anxiety of living through something like that, it never totally goes away. Everything is fine with me. I don't even really think about it unless I'm in a car or something and I'm under the under overpass. Until somebody actually gets me talking about it, I don't think about it, but I'll probably have a nightmare tonight. I do wake up reliving it. And the difference is when I relive it, I'm trapped. Like, in your nightmares, you're the one who's in the car? Yeah, in the nightmares, I'm the one trapped, and they're trying to get to me. Over the years, there have been a lot of stories about this earthquake. And for the most part, these are a scary reminder of what could happen. But for people like Raven and a lot of other folks in Oakland, it already did happen. And even if you can't see it, they've still got the scars. There are people in the neighborhood now who don't even know there was ever an earthquake here or that the freeway existed. This is why I wanted to share Raven's story now. Because, I don't know, I just, I just hope that hearing Raven talk about all this will help all the new people living in Oakland think a little bit more about how they relate to their neighbors who have been here for a while. And maybe things like this won't happen as much. Well, I do martial arts, and um, I was working out one day in front of the house with my stick, and I'm uh, doing my stick exercise, and I had been doing it for a while, and then all of a sudden, one morning, the police pull up to me, 
And the cop knew me, and he says, we got a complaint from someone, and the officer said the person had described me, and the police knew that, you know, I wasn't out there threatening anyone with a stick, but he just, you know, let me know and said, well, maybe you should just do it in the backyard, because you know, you know, how the neighborhood's changing, basically, wow. you know. Yes, I still go out once in a while, but I yeah. don't, I, I go out and I don't go off the property. I don't go on the side, because I used to work out on the sidewalk. Oh, okay. And so I just don't go on the sidewalk anymore. Yeah. So. Thank you so much for listening to East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Before getting to the thank yous, I want to dedicate this episode to the 42 people who died in West Oakland when the Cypress Freeway collapsed. Also to Raven's former neighbor, John Abdeljani. John was a big part of the rescue effort, and he passed away last year. May they all rest in peace. Okay, for this episode, I want to thank all the folks from Snap Judgment who helped make this story possible. Eliza Smith, Mark Ristich, Glenn Washington, Teo Duckett, and Davey Kim. Everybody, if you don't already listen to Snap Judgment, go subscribe now. Also, I want to thank C.B. Dahl Smith. C.B. is a great filmmaker based in West Oakland who's working on a documentary about the Cypress Freeway. You can find her stuff at communitybridgevideo.com. I'll be posting a lot of photos related to this episode, so make sure you follow East Bay Yesterday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. There's links to all those at eastbayyesterday.com. Also, I have a bunch of events coming up in the next month or so related to the release of the long-lost Oakland map. I'll be doing presentations about the map at E.M. Wolfman Bookstore and the Oakland Library and the Berkeley Library and maybe a few other spots. These presentations are going to be really visual, and I'll be talking about stuff that won't be covered in the podcast. So if you want to get the whole story about Long Lost Oakland, please come out. And yes, you will be able to purchase the map during my Kickstarter. Stay tuned. You can subscribe to East Bay Yesterday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. Please help spread the word about this show. That's all I'm asking. Just spread the word. And if you give East Bay Yesterday a shout out on social media, be sure to tag it and review it on iTunes too. That really, really helps. Music for this episode was provided by Chris Zabriskie, Tab, and Anatech. The theme song music came from Anatech. Okay, I'll be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday. <laughs>